the Batman. A mysterious and adventurous figure, fighting for righteousness and apprehending the wrongdoer in his lone battle against the evil forces of society. His identity remains unknown. On March 30, 1939, these words greeted readers of Detective Comics as they opened up its 27th issue. And now, in 2019, we celebrate not only the 80th birthday of the Cape Crusader, but also the release of the 1000th issue of a series that has become synonymous with Batman. Now join us as we look back on the greatest stories ever to grace the pages of Detective Comics. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we geek explain it. I'm your host, Eric Ozana, and today's episode is all about Detective Comics, the landmark series that has been kind of the backbone of DC Comics. It's what DC Comics stands for, Detective Comics. Um, this week, they are celebrating their 1,000th issue, and uh, we're going to be talking about that and a little bit more about Detective Comics as we go along. But first of all, we are going to knock out some uh, comic book news as we're trying to kind of inject more, uh, I guess, segments in this podcast. So uh, first up, we've got some big news on the uh, DC TV side, Arrow, the show that really started it all for the CW uh, DC TV universe is officially ending this fall. Uh, Stephen Amell announced that the final season, I think it's season 7 or season 8, will be the final season for the show and that it will be coming back this fall with a run of only 10 episodes. So If you're doing the math, that is going to lead right up into this year's crossover, which is Crisis on Infinite Earths. So that is going to be a huge crossover. I don't know how they're going to uh, put it into just three or four episodes. Uh, That's Crisis on Infinite Earths is a big story. We'll probably cover it when he when we get a little closer to the release of that uh, of the crossover, but. Yeah, so we did get a hint from this uh, past crossover, Elseworlds, that Oliver might be kind of biting the dust when it comes to Crisis on Infinite Earths, but I am really interested to see what this next and final season is about. This season has been covering a lot of ground, and uh, if you haven't watched anything from this season, it's been very good so far. Um, But there are a lot of, like comic booky things from the history of Green Arrow that they haven't really touched on yet. I personally would love to see Anamanapia show up in the final season, even if it's just for like one episode, even though he definitely deserves to be a season-long villain. But I think it's going to be a lot of probably like Arrow's greatest hits kind of deal with this last season. It's only 10 episodes, so that tells you that 
they are going to be cramming a lot of story in the lead up to Crisis. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's bittersweet since this is a show that really uh, brought a lot of characters into uh, the kind of mainstream uh, film and TV viewers kind of zeitgeist. It's there. There are characters like you know, like Commander Steel, uh, Constantine, Rip Hunter, like characters that really wouldn't show up without uh, Arrow being that groundwork, that base for all the other DC TV shows to build off of, and also for shows like Titans, shows like Doom Patrol, which we'll be talking about later with the uh, weekly review, uh, shows like Stargirl, like all of these things, Legends of Tomorrow, that really were established by the groundwork that was laid by Arrow. So it's bittersweet, it's great that they're getting another season, they're kind of getting to go off on their own terms, but it is kind of sad to see all these characters go. Uh, also, big news for the podcast, for this podcast that you're listening to right here, we have an Instagram. <laughs> I know we've been talking about it before, and over the weekend we finally were able to set it up. Um, it is same as our Twitter, at Pod. that's at Pod. Make sure to give us a follow on Instagram to kind of keep up with us. Uh, we'll be, probably be posting up stuff when it comes to like news, when it comes to uh, stuff that we're talking about every week on the podcast and overall it's just a really cool way to engage with you guys and for you guys to engage with me so um yeah definitely give us a follow on instagram and if you haven't given us a follow on twitter feel free to do that as well uh, and we're also going to be posting up stuff from wondercon this weekend uh this is going to be my first convention here in uh in los angeles wondercon is the big uh kind of spring-esque uh comic convention here in la and it's going to be my first time attending so i'm really excited i'm going to be there fridays and or friday and sunday and i'm just i'm really excited i haven't been to a convention in a while and uh there's a ton of really cool panels and guests that i'm excited about so um Make sure to give us that follow on Instagram because I'll be posting up kind of my WonderCon journey on there as well. So um, in other convention news, uh, C2E2 was this past weekend, and uh, we got some comic book news from them, mostly from Marvel, pretty much exclusively from Marvel, in fact. Um, first up, we have Absolute Carnage, so that is going to be the big, uh, another big event for this year following War of the Realms, written by uh, Donnie Cates. This is going to see Carnage basically take uh, what he has now from Null. He got a huge power boost, and he's going to be coming to Earth and basically attacking everyone that's ever worn a symbiote. And if you are up on your comics knowledge, that is pretty much everyone in the Marvel Universe. So everyone is a target as the... Uh, promotional material has been putting out and it is going to be a wild ride we also got confirmation that uh hickman jonathan hickman is returning to the marvel universe we've been getting teases of uh what his involvement might be in the last couple weeks of marvel comic issues there have been little uh teasers kind of leading up to this and they announced that hickman is going to be writing two big x-men series both 
I think they're titled House of X and Powers of X. So, um, yeah, that's a big deal. Hickman hasn't been on Marvel for a while, pretty much since the uh, Secret Wars event that rebooted, soft rebooted the Marvel Universe. So I'm interested to see what he does with uh, with X-Men. It's going to be a big deal. Also, uh, War of the Realms is officially kicking off next week. It is going to be a big, 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 big deal. So that is on its way as well. But for now, for this week, uh, the biggest news is we are going to be officially seeing Detective Comics 1000. The 1,000th issue of Detective Comics is uh, is dropping this Wednesday. I'm going to be picking it up probably along with one or two variant covers. And uh, because of that, because of the big release, it is a huge deal, 1,000 landmark issues, um, we decided to make this this episode of the podcast focused on Detective Comics, but not just Detective Comics as a whole, because I could go on for hours and hours and hours and hours just talking about Detective Comics as an entity. So I narrowed it down, and we are going to be talking about the focus of this episode, which is the best Detective Comics stories. Uh, These are arcs from Detective Comics, and uh, these were exclusively in the book, so uh, my kind of rules for this were that the stories had to be uh, exclusively in Detective Comics, which knocked out a couple other uh, really good stories that did take place there as well. Uh, So we're talking about Nightfall, stuff like that. Unfortunately, doesn't make the cut just because that was mainly focused in the uh, mainline Batman book. But in Detective Comics, there have been plenty of really good story arcs, and it was really difficult. I narrowed it down to my top three. These are the three best, in my humble opinion, uh, books that you could find out of the entire 1,000 issues of Batman. Um, We do have some honorable mentions a little bit later, but I narrowed it down to my top three. I'm going to be giving you the title, uh, what issues that these these took place in, the creative team, as well as the synopsis, and why I think that they are the best of the best. Uh, All of these, all three of these books are readily available for you to pick up on Amazon, so feel free to uh, check these out. They're all amazing, and I do have them ranked uh, from three to one so uh there is a best and there is a worst of the best but um all of these books are definitely worth your time so let's go ahead and kick it off onto our main countdown and at number three we have heart of hush Heart of Hush took place in Detective Comics number 846 to 850, written by Paul Dini with art by Dustin Nguyen. And here is the synopsis for Heart of Hush. Gotham City is plagued with crime and corruption in places high and low, but one man has taken a stand against evil in all its forms. Batman. The Dark Knight's life has been tumultuous since his one-time friend Tommy Elliot was revealed to be the Batman-hating criminal Hush. But Elliot is dead. Or is he? Hush has returned and is out to destroy everything and everyone close to Batman. With Catwoman's life on the line, can Hush finally be stopped? First of all, um, talking about the original Hush story. The original story, Batman Hush, is uh, pretty universally 
praised as one of, if not the best, standalone Batman stories. It has basically everything that you could want in a single Batman story. And it is considered by many to be uh, Batman at his best when it comes to storytelling. This, I will say right off the bat, is not as good as Hush. However, this is an excellent sequel to Hush, where um, Hush was pretty wide-reaching. Uh, this one is a lot more focused. You get to see really the uh, the hate that Tommy Elliot has for Bruce, and that is kind of expanded upon. Hush as a character was a lot... The big uh, thing in the original Hush story was kind of this mystery of who is Hush, uh, why is he doing this, who is... Uh, roping all of these events together but now that we have that this gets to play out much more like a revenge tale uh tommy elliott hates bruce wayne and his war against him in this story is one of the best kind of uh superhero revenge stories that i've ever read it's really it really takes its time to get into the perspective of Tommy Elliot, he does get to show off a little bit more. Uh, he also, you know, jumps off the deep end, as you see in this book. I'm trying not to be as spoilery, uh, just so that people who haven't read the book can enjoy it. But it's definitely something that I think is worth picking up, if for nothing else, because it's written by Paul Dini. Paul Dini, one of the amazing creative minds behind the original Batman the Animated Series, uh, returned and wrote this entire run of Detective Comics. And he has such a mind and such a voice for Batman and the way that he tells Batman's stories that reading this comes across very much as almost a darker Batman the Animated Series episode, which I love. Uh, with the DC Universe app, I've been watching a lot of uh first and second season batman the animated series episodes and this is right up that alley this is kind of like the midway point if you go from like batman the animated series to like the arkham games this is like a good middle ground between the two and uh this is also for those of you who have been kind of following the tom king run and really love the idea of bat cat uh, this is a great book for you because this book, at a certain point, pretty much lays the groundwork for Tom King's run because this really delves into the Batman-Catwoman uh, romance, really puts a focus on it, and does everything except maybe just outright saying that Catwoman is the love of Batman's life. Uh, this puts a big focus on their relationship, their past, and really what they want their future to be. So overall, this has a lot of what made the original Hush story great, but expanding upon it and making it a more uh, focused war on Batman that Hush is waging rather than just a lot of... Uh, I'll put it this way, if Hush itself was like the campaign, then this is the direct attack that Hush is making on Batman and his character. So for those reasons, it is amazing and it definitely deserves your time. At number two, we have Rise of the Batman. Uh, this is our soul rebirth uh, inclusion. This is 
Detective Comics issues 934 to 940, written by James Tynan IV, with art by Eddie Barrows, as well as Alvaro Martinez. Um, Let's jump to the synopsis. An elite fighting force modeled after the Dark Knight has invaded the streets of Gotham. Their armor, weaponry, and surveillance equipment are based on Batman's tech and tactics, but they're far beyond anything he's ever seen. And while their motives remain a mystery, their targets are all too clear. They're hunting Gotham's vigilantes. Now, alongside Batwoman, Batman must go from the world's greatest detective to the world's greatest teacher. Tim Drake, Red Robin. Stephanie Brown, spoiler. Cassandra Kane, orphan. And Basil Carlo, Clayface? These men and women are the shock troops in Batman and Batwoman's war. But when they finally see the face of their true enemy, will they stand together or fall apart? So this is the part where I have to reiterate that this is my opinion, that uh, (laughs) uh, this is my list. If you disagree, feel free to let me know. You can let me know at Pod on Twitter and Instagram now as well. Um, But this is one of my favorite runs of Detective Comics ever period. And it's also one of my favorite runs of DC Rebirth. This really, to me, along with a couple other books, represents Rebirth at its best. Uh, When Rebirth came out, for me, it was pretty much this, Flash, and Superman were my core three. Those were the three that I looked at and I was like, this is the best of this relaunch. Um, And this was what I think the promise of Rebirth, taking in all of these different ideas, all of these different past uh, continuities and really smoothing them out and letting both readers that had just jumped on with the New 52 as well as readers who had been with them for much longer and really rewarding them in their storytelling. Uh, I really love the idea of this story with Batman and Batwoman kind of working together to build up this strike team to handle all of these uh, all of these problems that are plaguing Gotham City. At a certain point, uh, you have to wonder when... Bruce is fighting his war, at what point does he realize that he can't be everywhere at once? So this that's where this team comes in. That's where this whole idea of really placing a focus on these younger characters, and even characters who aren't young, uh, really getting them together and having them work together really shines. This idea that uh, we are going to place spotlights on all of these characters who might not have gotten a spotlight otherwise. Uh, Cassandra Kane is incredible, even the New 52 version of her. Um, and the, what I really liked about Rebirth as a, uh, as a directive was it blended a lot of pre-New 52 and post-New 52 elements in all of these characters. Uh, later on in this run, Tim Drake has some of his best work in this story um and just in the context of this arc that uh james tyne the fourth really put together i really enjoy him he's my favorite robin um i have to make that distinction he's my favorite robin um out of the group and he really gets to shine in this and kind of mirroring that uh stephanie brown spoiler really gets to shine in this as well uh she 
really got uh, the shaft when the New 52 happened. At that point, she had become Batgirl, and she was really stepping into her own. And then the New 52 happened, and she disappeared. So uh, it was a long road to get her back, and a long road to get her back together with Tim. And the two of them work so well together. It Their whole relationship is a big focus in this book, and I really enjoy it. Uh, Batwoman teaming with Batman is also really fun because they both approach it in different ways. Batman has had wards before and trained them up to fight his war, but Batwoman hasn't. And she comes from a very staunch military background, so they get different, uh, really different perspectives on things, and I appreciate that. So I really enjoy it. Um, and also you get this amazing redemption story with Clayface. He, uh, he's a villain that not a lot of people talk about, and I think that's sad. Um, because he's one of the most compelling villains in Batman's entire rogues gallery. Uh, this is a failed actor who, because of an accident, uh, was basically cursed with his abilities. And all he wants to do is go back to a regular life. But because of his inability to do so, it's driven him towards crime. So this story really gives him an element of someone who has been in bad situations and trying to make himself better in spite of his past so that's a really cool thing uh his kind of budding and growing relationship with Cass is also really cool because uh he's an actor and she doesn't really speak so they uh they bond over their mutual love of Shakespeare and I love that you're giving these layers these care or these characters these layers that you might not think about um, this specific arc, The Rise of the Batman, that goes from 934 to 940, uh, for me also has one of the most heartbreaking endings to an arc. And of course, this story continues on, um, as all comic stories do. But without getting the context of the rest of this arc, the rest of uh, Tynan's run on Detective Comics, this story serves as a really good, um, almost tragedy and a story of what happens when people who don't necessarily have the same vision come together to serve the same purpose. So I really enjoy it. Of course, again, uh, Tynan has such a respect and such a reverence for Tim Drake as a character, and I'm always, always a fan of when you have Bruce and Tim together. So this is definitely a win for me, and I think you will really enjoy it as well. And that brings us to... Not our number one, but our honorable mentions. The honorable mentions are going to jump uh, number one for just a moment. And uh, these ones I'm not going to have as kind of in-depth on. I'm just going to kind of let you know what they are, kind of talk about them, and uh, move on a little bit. So the first up for honorable mentions is Batwoman Elegy. This is number 854 to 860. And um, this is great. This is right after the whole uh, Batman R.I.P. This is during the Batman Reborn push when Dick Grayson became Batman. And while he was in the mainline Batman and Robin book, Detective Comics was left without a lead character. And so Batwoman Kate Kane stepped into the role, and this is a great, great book. Uh, this really serves as Kate's first leading lady 
uh, story. Uh, this deals with a lot of her past as well as her going up against Alice, which is a great character kind of spawning off of uh, Jervis Tetch the Mad Hatter, all of that Lewis Carroll uh, influence. And it's just a great story. It's a great story at a time where I think a lot of people weren't sure about the future of the Bat family because this is fairly soon after... Uh, Bruce Wayne quote-unquote died and a lot of people were not sure how that was going to go but with how strong this story was and how strong uh, Batman and Robin with Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne in the titular roles the future was bright for the Bat family so this is definitely worth your time especially if you liked Ruby Rose's Batwoman in uh, the Elseworlds crossover and you're looking forward to uh, her solo series, which I want to say starts filming this fall or might already be filming the pilot at least. But uh, either way, really good stuff. Next up on our honorable mentions list, we have Batman Year Two, also known as Batman Fear the Reaper. Uh, this was in issues 575 to 578. And uh, this is a great story. I know there are a lot of people who don't like this story, but I really enjoy it. Um, this is exactly what it sounds like. Batman in uh, his year two, kind of supposedly a uh, spiritual successor to year one, even though it's not handled by the same team at all and was originally, I want to say it was written as, it was called Batman 1980. Uh by the original writer and then when batman year one came out they wanted to capitalize on it so they called this batman year two so it's i will say right out front it's not as good as batman year one uh very seldom are stories about batman but um this is a good story in its own right this deals with batman who's still young in his fine his fine crying his crime fighting career uh running against the reaper who is a uh, scythe hand wielding vigilante who predates batman and was famous for using his uh abilities and his war on crime to lethal force uh this is really interesting because this is also kind of touching on the golden age of batman where he ran around with a gun um, we see him kind of make the choice to not use guns, as well as uh, him kind of slowly coming to the realization that he's not going to be able to have a life outside of his war on crime. Uh, this also introduces us to Rachel, not that Rachel, a different Rachel, but has a lot of those same story beats where he believes that he might be able to retire and... Uh, go have a wonderful life with his new romantic interest and this story deals a lot with um uh, it it it's tough to say because this story also really influenced the uh amazing and uh really underappreciated batman film mask of the phantasm uh i was and still am a huge fan of that story. And you can tell if you put them side by side, there are a lot of things that the stories share, whether that be the love interest having a connection with the main antagonist. Uh, the overall look of the Phantasm is very influenced by the Reaper. If you just look at them uh, side by side with the uh, tattered cloak hiding a skull face, a scythe hand, like 
there they could be almost one to one comparisons with just a a a bit of color swapping here and there. But overall, I loved and still do Batman Mask of the Phantasm, and that may have influenced my enjoyment of this series. But I think it's definitely worth a look, and even if it's not as good as Year One, I think it's a great next step into Year One. It's kind of a great uh, stepping stone into stories like Batman Dark Victory, Long Halloween, those kind of stuff. So I definitely think you should check it out. If nothing else, than to see a different comics version of Mask of the Phantasm. And then finally on my honorable mentions list, I have Gordon at War. This is uh, issues 47 to 52 of the New 52, which, and I did the math, uh, legacy issues uh, for issues 928 to 933 of Detective Comics overall run. And uh, this deals with, and I think it's funny, um, this deals with Jim Gordon during his brief stint as Batman. And I think it's really interesting that some of the best Detective Comics stories don't involve Bruce Wayne being under the cowl. I think it's really interesting that uh, you can take characters who aren't Bruce Wayne and you can tell amazing Batman stories with them. Um, this is an interesting, interesting story because this is uh, really dealing with Jim Gordon's struggle to be Batman. This was during the time where Batman had died again, uh, this time in the new 52 continuity, though uh, as revealed in the mainline Batman book written by Scott Snyder and Greg with art by Greg Capullo, uh, he was alive, he was just amnesiac. So Gordon, actually being sponsored by the uh, Gotham City Police Department, was Batman. So he had all these uh, police resources, he was uh, back in the gym, he had taken some performance-enhancing drugs to get him back to fighting shape. He had shaved the mustache, the famous mustache, gotten a ridiculous-looking crew cut, and was also uh, running around in a Batmech, or the... Uh, Bunny Man, the bunny Batmech that people really, uh, I myself really enjoyed. Um, but this story deals a lot with uh, Gordon more on the personal and mental game when it comes to Batman. This story involves him really struggling under the weight of what Batman means. And this story is, again, really good because it tells the it tells the story that I think a lot of people got out of the Nolan uh, trilogy in that the idea is that Batman is not a single person. Batman is a symbol, and anyone could be Batman. And I like that the story puts a focus on that with someone who knew Batman almost from the very beginning. So this is a great story. It's also, if you're a fan of those Nolan sensibilities, this is definitely a book that you should look into as at this point they were going for a more grounded uh, take when it came to Batman storytelling. So definitely check this one out as well. But now that we have the honorable mentions out of the way, let's jump into what I think is the number one and best story from Detective Comics. And that is Batman Black Mirror. Uh, this story was in issues 871 to 881 written by scott snyder with art by jock and francesco francavilla i am going to assume i said that right uh here's the synopsis 
For years, Batman and Jim Gordon have stared into the unyielding abyss that is Gotham City. Time after time, they've saved their beloved city from itself, not allowing it to be swallowed by a pit of violence and corruption. But even after a crime-fighting lifetime of confronting what they thought was the worst humanity had to offer, an even darker and more dangerous evil pushes Batman and Gordon to their limits. Can two of Gotham's proudest protectors bring justice to this malevolent threat in Commissioner Gordon's most personal battle to date? So, this is, for me, the best Detective Comics story that ever was. Um, a lot of people have had really good runs on the story, or uh, on the comic, but for me, pound for pound, this is the best, uh, not just Batman run, but this is a fantastic self-contained story. And this was the very first taste I had of Scott Snyder reading Batman, which I think is interesting and is notable because this is not Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is not Batman at this point. This run of Batman was during the Batman Reborn line, um, where Dick Grayson had assumed the mantle. He had just become Batman. Um, he was struggling with the weight of it all. And it, for me, was really, really interesting. I love Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson is in my top three of superheroes of all time. Uh, and to see him step into a legacy role like this was fulfillment as someone who grew up with the character and watched them grow and really step into their own. And for me, reading this story, which plays out like a classic detective noir story with some supernatural elements, uh, this made me believe that when they announced that Scott Snyder was going to be taking over the mainline Batman book, it made me a believer. I knew that things were going to be okay, even if he wasn't writing uh, Dick Grayson in the main Batman book when the new 52 came out. Also, the art, Jock, is amazing. Jock is fantastic. I love the way he draws perspective, and I think he makes some of the most haunting pages that you will ever read in a comic book. And Francesco Francavilla, who does the art for the Jim Gordon story, is no slouch either. He brings a classic, almost 40s sensibility, 40s and 50s, that I really enjoy, and he brings another kind of haunting... Um, kind of a haunting sensibility to it as well. Uh, it's very noir. It's very uh, almost neo-noir in the way that he draws people and in the, in the lighting that is used. I really enjoy it. Uh, this in itself as well is a true crime thriller. Uh, this is thrilling from start to finish. Uh, from cover to cover, this is a tense, really... Uh, crime suspense thriller and i keep saying that but it is it's true it's one of those books that keeps you on the edge of your seat with each issue and i love it i love getting the perspective of dick grayson coming into this detective story because he's not the world's greatest detective he was the world's greatest gymnast he was the world's uh flirtiest superhero but he was not a detective and watching him work with Jim Gordon, who is an amazing detective in his own right, is a great, 
great team up and we get to see kind of the maturation of him as a character at the point that this story starts um we've already kind of gone through the uh death and rebirth of batman bruce wayne has returned after his uh ventures through time and has decided to make batman global so he has started up batman incorporated and dick grayson is now kind of trying to figure out what his place is in this world of two batmen so i really like that perspective on it i really really enjoy him kind of facing off with stuff that uh bruce wayne wouldn't you know blink twice at and him kind of struggling through this mystery really for me personally puts the reader in the driver's seat because you're figuring this out along with dick a lot of times when it comes to batman bruce wayne he has this tendency to just have contingency plans for everything and though that makes for good moments with him at times it can make for uh predictable stories it's like oh he's never in any danger because he's batman and he'll just figure his way out of it so for me i really enjoy seeing uh somebody like dick grayson struggle because again i would be struggling with the same thing so being able to get that sensibility with it is really cool as well this also brings together both new and old enemies for batman and jim gordon um i won't spoil who they are but they are very well used here and they really push both of our leads to their limits Again, stunning visuals, Jock is incredible, Francesco Fregavilla is amazing as well, and as a classic detective story, if you're looking for, if because we've heard a lot recently that uh, Matt Reeves is working on his solo Batman film and that it is going to be a classic detective noir story, really focusing on Batman's detective skills. If you are looking for a great Batman detective story, this is where you gotta look because this is a great detective story it's a great horror story it's a great thriller um it just it checks it checks all the boxes for a phenomenal instant classic batman story so that is why for me it is the best batman story in detective comics uh, but I want to hear what you think. Uh, what do you think is the best Detective Comics story? Do you agree with me? Do you uh, think I'm way off base? Feel free to let me know on Twitter at GeekSplainedPod. That's at GeekSplainedPod. And now also on Instagram at the same handle. Uh, feel free to also send me emails because I'm an old man and I still read emails to GeekSplained at gmail.com. Uh, but before we jump into our next segments, I kind of wanted to talk about uh, the one that started it all. Since we are looking at Detective Comics 1000, I thought it would be cool to kind of look back on the original Batman story, Detective Comics number 27. Again, was released March 30th, 1939. This story I reread the other day, and it's so funny because you look at something and you think to yourself, at least I do, that storytelling has improved and has matured and has evolved so much over the last 80 years that this story would almost um, fall flat and look campy and silly. 
Um, and don't get me wrong, some of the dialogue is very campy and very silly. But the story itself, I think, holds up. It is entitled The Case of the Chemical Syndicate. And um, for me, this really lays the groundwork for everything that comes after it. Uh, this establishes our two leads in the Batman family, both Bruce Wayne and Jim Gordon. Uh, also, really gives you kind of the bare essentials for a classic Batman story. You've got our two leads, you've got a mystery, you've got action, you've got uh, a little bit of interesting dialogue and character choices, and you also get uh, a big reveal at the end. This is, even though I think a very well-done story, it is a simple story. Um, the twists and turns, I think, aren't exactly there yet because they were still trying to figure out exactly what they wanted to do with him but starting it off with this conversation between uh jim and bruce basically talking about batman like bruce saying you know oh have you you know heard anything and jim's like no we still don't know what's going on or even if he's real and then jumping into batman on this mission trying to uh stop the chemical syndicate from killing off you know these people i thought was really do well done and it's a fun read it's a fun read and the very last bit where uh, bruce wayne comes in he tells gordon he's like you know have you figured anything out when it comes to the Batman? And Jim Gordon's like, no, we still don't know who he is. We know he's real now, but we don't know who he is. And then the last uh, couple panels where it says basically like Bruce Wayne goes back to his room in his home. Almost almost not uh, saying that he's a rich guy, even though they identify him as a socialite. Um, for me, it's kind of funny because it's, it's like a panel showing the door of his room. And then it opens up and Batman steps through. And it's like, oh, this is the reveal. Bruce Wayne, the young socialite who was talking about uh, how silly Batman is with Jim Gordon, is actually the Batman himself. And this laid, again, laid the groundwork for Bruce Wayne having a public identity alongside being his uh, his secret identity as Batman. And it's just a fun, simple story that really gives you everything that you need to know about Batman as a character. Plus, I'm a sucker for the purple gloves. I'm a sucker for the classic Batman uh, look. That's why I was such a huge fan of his Zero Year costume, where they really updated the original Batman look. But I, I really like it, and it's a fun thing now that we're looking back 80 years later and uh, at 1,000 issues of Detective Comics, looking back on this story that was simple at the time but really was the start of something incredible and something that changed comic books and the way we see pop culture uh, forever, even today. So... I really enjoyed it. I uh, I definitely think you should go back and check out the original Detective Comics 27 story. They uh, they reprinted it when they were doing the New 52 Detective Comics, uh, kind of updating the uh, the art but keeping the spirit of the original story. Uh, they did a whole special Detective Comics number 27 issue for the New 52. So if you can find that, track that down as well. Because that has a few good stories that were really laying the groundwork for uh, future stories inside the New 52. But 
yeah, that's it for the main meat of this uh, podcast. I'm really excited to pick up Detective Comics number 1000. We'll be talking a little bit more about that specific issue in uh, this week's Comics Countdown. But for now, let's jump on over to the weekly review. And now it is time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our podcast where I review something weekly. And the first focus of our uh, weekly review series is the Doom Patrol show that is on the DC Universe app. Uh, It's a live-action show that has been doing really well. I've been really enjoying it so far. Um, If you... If this is the first time listening to the podcast, first of all, welcome. And uh, second of all, you can go back uh, the past few weeks. We've been reviewing each episode as it drops every Friday. I have really been kind of getting into the DC Universe app in the last week or so. Um, The big push for it for me was to check out Doom Patrol because I was really intrigued by it. Um, But I really am starting to sort of see the value of the uh, the series that or of the app because it shows a it has a bunch of the old school uh, animated series. We're talking Batman the animated series, Superman the animated series, the Justice League animated series, Batman Beyond. We're also talking about old school stuff like Super Friends, the original animated Superman Adventures, and it has films too. Some of the classic. Uh, Keaton Batman films, as well as a bunch of the animated films as well. I just re-watched Justice League Gods and Monsters last night. Super underrated film, by the way. But uh, yeah, and it also has a lot of comics on there that you can read online. If you're familiar with reading comics through an app like Comixology, through the Marvel app, or anything like that, I myself am a hard copy guy, but I can appreciate being able to just check out a large uh, library of comics. So I know this sounds like an ad and it's not because they're not sponsoring me, but I just, I want to let you guys know that I steadily am slowly finding value in, uh, in the entry price for the DC Universe app, and I've kind of been enjoying it. But the main push for me is what it was when I first signed up for it, and that is the Doom Patrol show. And this week's episode is called Doom Patrol Patrol. Each week has been a different, uh, it's been like blank patrol. Last week was Paw Patrol, this week is Doom Patrol Patrol. And the episode last week ended with the cliffhanger of Mr. Nobody sending Crazy Jane to find something called the Doom Patrol. And this episode was really good. This episode was actually uh, very Elastowoman or Rita Farr focused. This dealt a lot with kind of her origins. Um, We got to see her back in 50s Hollywood trying to uh, reclaim some of her career post- accident when she got her abilities and it's really uncomfortable in the like early goings of this episode because 50s hollywood is gross like i know we've been 
recently in recent years with the whole push of me too and all of the stuff coming out of like how skeezy hollywood is harvey weinstein and all those other um really just awful people but sometimes it's interesting if not really sad to know that all of this stuff has always been happening but back here in the 50s you know it was just commonplace and people um didn't see anything wrong with it or if they did they kept hush about it so uh this opens up with rita trying to convince this director to put him in her movie and then he has her sit on his lap and it's really really gross but then she kind of loses control and oozes becoming that giant like flesh um goo monster that she kind of became in the first episode and uh crushes this guy to death and then the secretary comes in and she's just like oh i guess he had a heart attack like really being like you got to get out of here you'll never hear to rita and i was like yeah go secretary that guy was a sleaze bag but anyway um the episode is mostly focused around this search for the doom patrol and finding out what the doom patrol was and as we come to realize the doom patrol was an actual team in the 50s uh they were 50s heroes kind of put together originally by niles calder uh and it consisted of mento who was the leader along with celsius who uh, was also niles's wife as well as lodestone so if you listen to our episode covering the full history of the Doom Patrol, if you haven't checked it out, please feel free. It's a great episode. Um, this is interesting. It's really interesting having these kind of legacy characters show up uh, through from you know the history of the entire team. But so you find out that um, Rita knew all about them because she was existing at this time, and she had a short-lived affair with Mento, which I find really interesting. I loved seeing Mento, the guy that got to play him. I can't remember his name right now, but I thought he was fantastic in the role. Um, and in their search to find out who the Doom Patrol is, what the Doom Patrol is, uh, Crazy Jane, Rita Farr, and... Um, Oh, Negative Man, I'll go to this mansion that is very Charles Xavier-esque. And out front are Celsius and Lodestone, who are seem to be teaching, almost Umbrella Academy style. And I know that sounds weird, but I say that because the kids, the students, are totally wearing the Umbrella Academy blazers, the navy blazers with like the red piping. So it was a clear, at least to me, and I could be totally wrong, but it was a clear reference, and I really liked that, considering how uh, instrumental Doom Patrol was in the creation of um, Umbrella Academy and how Gerard Way has had a hand in both teams. So I thought that was really cool. And you come to find out that the school is kind of uh, run by the headmaster Joshua Clay, who is another old school uh, Doom Patrol team member. I really liked seeing him. And it really turns into this whole thing where 
um, you find out this tragic backstory of the Doom Patrol where they went up against Mr. Nobody after having faced the Brotherhood of Evil, mind you. Uh, Mento is showing off his little, like, trophy case of conquests, and we see the case for the brain and how the brain, quote-unquote, escaped, and they don't know where he is, so that could be something that comes up later. But I loved getting the reference of... Um, of the Brotherhood of Evil, and then seeing the old-school red-and-white Doom Patrol costumes was really cool, too. But you come to find out that after all their adventures, they went up against uh, Mr. Nobody, and he just demolished them. Apparently, he used his ability to warp reality and turn them against each other and against themselves, and Niles Calder, it seems, because we get... Uh, references in the first episode that he would periodically leave and so they kind of come to the conclusion that he was coming to visit this place and you find out that everything about the school the fact that lodestone um celsius and mento haven't aged even though they were back in the 50s um they that this whole thing has been an illusion created by mento uh, basically as a safe haven for his fractured mind and the fractured minds of the other Doom Patrol members to kind of rest. And you find this like really sad realization where Joshua Clay reveals that Niles doesn't come very often. And we don't know how long it's been since he showed up. We also get the implication that Niles was prepping a room for Crazy Jane to be there. And mind you, he picked her up, you know, in the in the 70s. So at this point, the Doom Patrol would have already been, you know, laid to waste and in this kind of mental prison. And you see, it's so, oh God, it's so sad. Because at the very beginning, Joshua Clay shows uh, Crazy Jane, he's like, this is your room. And then when Crazy Jane comes up on it later, she finds all of these locks on the outside of her door. And it's so sad. It's so sad. Uh, we also get um, a little bit of uh, Silas Stone and Cliff Steele along with Cyborg. We get some good looking at uh, Cyborg's, at least his top half when it comes to his uh, practical effects robotic body. And I thought they every episode that we see cyborg he looks better and better and i really appreciate that again he's looking a lot like his old school you know original noon teen titans look which i appreciate but uh cliff and silas kind of have this mutual understanding about being fathers and they um really kind of butt heads over trying to fix victor and at the end silas seems to have this uh usb that victor kind of pickpockets and it's it's interesting we're still kind of leaning towards this darker take on silas stone which i really appreciate so i'm interested to see where that goes but yeah ultimately um they're able to figure everything out and you find out that joshua clay is basically the caretaker of the doom patrol that they're all older people that this uh that celsius just like in the comics was actually never married to niles and that that's part of the delusion it's really it's really tragic and really sad and uh, it's ended up being one of my favorite episodes i really enjoyed this uh, it also really kind of put into perspective we needed this halfway through the season where we really needed kind of a put in perspective of how menacing mr nobody is and the fact that the doom patrol has already fallen
when it comes to facing off with Mr. Nobody and how this possible new Doom Patrol could end up in the same fate. So it was very good. Really enjoyed it. I am excited to continue on this the series. Next week is called Therapy Patrol, so I'm interested because every member of the Doom Patrol in some way, shape, or form probably needs some type of therapy. So I'm interested to see. It looks like it's going to be kind of another... Um, and a more self-contained episode to give us a bit of a palate cleanser after the big story implications of this episode. But overall, yeah, really enjoyed it. It's one of my favorite episodes of the season. Definitely check it out. And also let me know if you did watch it, what you thought of the episode, whether you liked it, whether you disliked it, whether you liked all of the um, references to Doom Patrol's history in the comics, uh, whether you have been sleeping on this series or whether you've been loving it so far. Feel free to let me know. And uh, for now, let's jump over to this week's Comics Countdown. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk to you about the comics that I am going to be picking up on this new comic book day and the books that I think you should be picking up too. Um, I'll be going over their title, I'll be going over the creative team behind them, as well as a brief synopsis. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by a different synopsis voice. If you have a synopsis voice that you think I should try out, feel free to recommend them of course on twitter at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained pod and also on instagram now since we have an instagram uh or feel free to send me emails as well because i'm an old man and i still read emails you can send any of those to geeksplained at gmail.com uh this week we've got right on the money five comics that i think you should definitely be picking up these are must pickups for me this week and uh we'll go ahead and jump into the first one which is superior spider-man number four Really enjoyed the first arc of Superior Spider-Man when he was facing off against Terax in the middle of San Francisco. And this book seems to be going more towards the War of the Realms, which is uh, right upon us. I want to say it starts next week or the week after. Any, either way, uh, pretty much every single book in the Marvel universe is going to be affected by this. So I'm interested to see where this goes. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis right now. With San Francisco and Otto in ruins after Terax's attack, rebuilding is required. But will a weakened superior Spider-Man be chum in the water to opportunistic villains? So yeah, uh, written by Christos Gage with art by Mike Hawthorne, this book is interesting. Um, again, all of these books are kind of now almost preludes into War of the Realms. So I'm interested to see some... I've heard rumblings that uh, Superior Spider-Man is going to have a role when it comes to this big event. So I'm excited. I'm really interested to see what happens. Another book that I'm really interested to see what happens next is Fantastic Four number 8, written by Dan Slott with art by Aaron Cuter, one of my favorites. Uh, this looks to be the uh, continuation of the uh, Galactus versus Doctor Doom story, and this is also, again, kind of a prelude into War of the Realms. Uh, the cover does show the War of the Realms is coming in one week, so I guess it is next week. So I am interested to see what happens here. Let's jump into the synopsis. Herald of Doom continues with first world power. 
Latveria is about to take its rightful place on the world stage. Thanks to the benevolence and ingenuity of your beloved leader, Victor Von Doom, Latverians will soon know a new age of peace and prosperity. All of this shall come to pass, as long as we can repel these four nefarious foreign invaders who have illegally entered our beloved country. Death to the Fantastic Four. So yeah, uh, last issue basically was Doctor Doom kind of prevailing against Galactus and also turning on the Fantastic Four. So it's, you know, it's classic storytelling. Uh, Dan Slott has been saying a lot recently that he is really trying to push the envelope when it comes to how people view Fantastic Four stories. So I'm interested to see if that continues here. I'm really interested to see him break new ground when it comes to this book. And uh, yeah, another book that is breaking new ground is Invaders number three, written by Chip Zdarsky with Carlos Magno on art duties. I have been loving this book. This book has been so good so far with the old school Invaders Captain America, Bucky, and and the original Human Torch, Jim Hammond, though he hasn't uh, flame-owned yet, uh, kind of going against the Mad King Namor. I have been really enjoying this series. The art is beautiful. The storytelling is really good. Chip Zdarsky, of course, is fantastic. So let's jump into the synopsis here. War Ghosts continues. America is readying for its final war with Atlantis. It's a race against the clock as the Winter Soldier infiltrates the military and Captain America confronts Namor's human allies alongside the original Human Torch. Can they get to the bottom of Namor's plan in time? So yeah, uh, I'm... Again, I love this series so far. These are some of my favorite characters in Marvel Comics. And uh, I'm I'm really digging it. I'm really digging it. I'm not sure if this is supposed to be a limited series or if this is going to be an ongoing. I hope it's an ongoing. But uh, yeah, things are ramping up. The issues have been really good. Another uh, book that's been ramping up is Heroes in Crisis. This week with issue number seven of nine. Uh, this is, of course, written by Tom King with Clay Mann jumping back on art duties. Uh, this was the issue that a lot of people got really up in arms about over the uh, Poison Ivy cover. And, I mean, I get it. I totally see where they're coming from. Um, I am really interested to see what story implications that this cover has, and it's not looking good for us Wally West fans. Um... Last issue dropped some major hints on there being some kind of foul play with Wally. Um, also kind of recounting, I want to say issue two or issue three, where we saw Harley Quinn kill him or uh, kill Wally West. And now in last issue, we saw that it was Booster Gold who killed Wally West. So something's up, something's going on. I'm hoping we get some answers. We've been getting a lot of setup, a lot of runaround. I'm hoping we get more answers here. Let's jump into the synopsis. The Trinity may have uncovered the true killer responsible for the deaths at Sanctuary, but the artificial intelligence that ran the institution is the one thing standing between them and the culprit. Now Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman must face off with their own creation and face the consequences for what they created. Also, 
As the truth is uncovered, Booster and Harley go from being enemies to allies. So yeah, this is kind of teasing that neither Booster nor Harley are the uh, killer, though we haven't, of course, gotten explicit confirmation of that. We haven't gotten explicit confirmation on really anything except for the fact that most everyone at Sanctuary is dead. So I'm interested to see if we finally get some concrete answers here. We've only got two more issues following this, so we will see what happens. But of course, the big book releasing this week is Detective Comics number 1000, with multiple writer-artist teams featuring, of course, Peter uh, P.J. Tomasi, Jim Lee, and others. I believe uh, James Tynan IV is also getting a uh, writing a story for it with art by Doug Monkey, Jim Lee, as well as some others as well. I am really excited, and obviously I am because I did the entire episode on Detective Comics this week. So I am really stoked. This is a big milestone for them. Of course, this is just a... Uh, you know, a big publicity thing for them to sell a bunch of variant comics, but as someone who enjoys history, as someone who does enjoy really good variant issues or variant covers, um, I'm a sucker for it. So I, uh, I'll definitely be picking up at least a couple of the covers, but let's jump into the synopsis. After 80 years, it's here, the 1,000th issue of Detective Comics, the title that literally defines DC. This 96-page issue is stacked with an unbelievable lineup of talent that will take you on a journey through Batman's past, present, and future, plus a sensational epilogue that features the first-ever DC Universe appearance of the deadly Arkham Knight. But who is under the mask, and why do they want Batman dead? The incredible future of Batman Adventures begins here. So yeah, I'm, uh... This, what can you say about Detective Comics 1000 that we haven't already said in this episode? Um, I'm really excited about it. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to see all of the stories. Uh, but I'm really curious and really interested in that uh, Arkham Knight debut. Famously, Arkham Knight was uh, Jason Todd in the Arkham Knight game. And a lot of people were disappointed, myself included. I personally was really hoping that the Arkham Knight in the game would be the in-universe uh, debut of Terry McGinnis, and that it would kind of like branch off into a Batman Beyond thing, but uh, ultimately it was Jason Todd, so I don't think it's going to be him this time around, since Jason is doing his own thing, but you never know with DC, so I'm really interested to see this, I'm really interested to pick this up, and I think you should definitely pick this up too. So to recap... We have the Superior Spider-Man, number four, Fantastic Four, number eight, Invaders, number three, Heroes in Crisis, number seven of nine, and Detective Comics, number 1,000. If there are any books that you think I should be picking up alongside these, please feel free to let me know. Uh, if you plan on picking up these books, if you plan on picking up Detective Comics 1,000, what variant covers are you interested in? What variant covers kind of stand out to you? I've got a, my eye on a couple that um, I'm definitely going to try to pick up if i can but that is it for this week's comics countdown and now for the final segment of our podcast at least this week we will be jumping over to 
the continuing rankings of the MCU films. Uh, We kicked it off last week with uh, numbers 21 through 18, and this week we will be checking out numbers 17, 16, and 15. So stick around for that as we rank the MCU. And here we are. We are counting down the MCU movies with our non-official rankings. Uh, Last week, we did numbers 21, 20, 19, and 18. Uh, And this week, we are continuing the countdown with numbers 17, 16, and 15. Um, It's really interesting going through these films, going back, watching them, and putting them into this list. I was uh, talking to uh, some of my buddies the other day. We're always in this group text, and uh, I let them know that this might have been the most difficult thing I've ever had to do when it comes to geek and nerd culture. Um, This is a tough list. This is a tough list to put together, and I think while the kind of uh, top and bottom were fairly easy to sort out. It's uh, it's that mid-ground. It's the middle rankings that really uh, proved difficult for me, and I switched around at least four or five times. So it it's overall, it's been very difficult, but I am still willing to put this all together, and I am interested to see what you guys think of this list. I got some positive responses for the first iteration, and uh, I'm looking forward to see what everyone thinks of the picks going forward. So we are officially four weeks away from Avengers Endgame, officially uh, one calendar month away, and the countdown is going to conclude right on the week that we uh, all find out what the hell is going to happen. So in the lead up to that, let's kick off our countdown this week with number 17, which is the first Thor movie. Uh, first Thor movie is, I think, one of the unsung heroes of that first phase of MCU. Uh, this was, I think, a really good intro to Thor. You get a little bit of his uh, of his background, his general temperament, his family dynamic, all of the Shakespearean stuff that goes into that. And you get to mix a little bit of uh, fish out of water with a little bit of Kat Dennings. Uh, her character Darcy, though she got less uh, appealing as a character in Thor The Dark World, um, I thought she really shined in this film. She was fun, she was spunky, and she proved to be a good ensemble character with uh, Natalie Portman as well as... Um, oh, I can't remember his name. Oh, it's the older scientist. Oh, that's going to bother me. That's going to bother me. But anyway... Um, This also featured the debut of Thor and Loki, Loki being one of the most beloved characters of the MCU. Uh, This really, I think, did a great job in kind of encapsulating what Loki's character is. Uh, He was boiled down a bit to his essentials for the first Avengers film, and we lost a bit of the tragic Hamlet 
kind of uh, sensibilities that he established in this first film. And I liked his story. I liked his journey from being kind of the uh, set-aside sibling to trying to, in his eyes, be the savior of his people and his family. And kind of watching all of that crumble around him because of his misguided uh, machinations really was, it's tragic. And you get to see him both rise to as good as he can get and fall as dark as he can go. And this was just the start of his journey. So I thought he did a really great job. Um, Unfortunately, the film does suffer from some pacing issues. I think uh, a lot of the uh, stuff that takes place in the New Mexico town while Chris Hemsworth is fantastic as the mighty Thor wandering around in this human town. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that could have been sped up, a lot of stuff that could have been chopped off to make it a more uh, flowing story. Natalie Portman, I also have to say, is, uh, is a negative for this. I think that with as good of a caliber actor as she was, the film doesn't really use her properly, and you kind of get the feeling that she didn't want to be there. More so in Thor, Ragn- or, uh, Thor The Dark World, of course, which I think is a big reason why she didn't return for Thor Ragnarok. But in this film, you can tell that she seems a little bit disinterested, and I don't really think that her and Chris Hemsworth have uh, very good chemistry with each other, which is unfortunate because Jane Foster, as a comics character, is an incredibly good and complex character. So I think that is unfortunately a knock against it. And also, there wasn't enough Asgard. Um, really the majority of this film takes place in this kind of sleepy New Mexico town and I would have liked more Asgard the way that they set it up with this like uh, the way that Kenneth Branagh really got to play around with our uh, our initial ideas of what Asgard would look like almost making it this uh, science fiction-y slash fantasy uh, place, I thought was really good, and I would have liked to see more of it. Uh, They did bring us more Asgard and Thor The Dark World, which I liked, but at that point, the directors had swapped out, and it was represented as more of a uh, almost Game of Thrones style uh, feel when it came to Asgard, but I would have really liked to see more of this. Uh, one last positive I do have for it, though, is Coulson. Coulson, again, is a winning character, even though he only shows up for a little bit of it. And uh, the oh, the line at the uh, near the end where Thor goes, you know, basically saying, I'll be there, and calls him Son of Cole, is just, I adore it. I really, really enjoy it. So um, for those reasons, I have to put it... it knocks out the uh the beginning four but i couldn't put it any higher just because of the pacing issues and the uh the non-chemistry between our two romantic leads uh number 16 beating out thor is dr strange now this i think is going to be controversial for a lot of people because a lot of people really love dr strange and i really enjoyed it too for what it was but i couldn't put it higher than this uh for my notes here uh positive stephen strange Benedict Cumberbatch is an incredible actor and he really 
you could tell, puts as much as he can into this role without trying to make him too much like Sherlock, which is the role that really brought him to the dance when it comes to the world stage. Um, he puts a spin on it that kind of crosses him between uh, Sherlock and uh, Robert Downey Jr. Not Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark, which I know sometimes they're uh, interchangeable, but Robert Downey Jr. as a character. He's confident, he's showy, he's cocky, and uh, I really enjoy him in this role. Stephen Strange is a fun character, even though he is very cocky, and watching him kind of clunkily work his way through his... Uh, his journey into the mystic corners of the MCU is fun. Uh, unfortunately, this is another origin story at a time where I think for me personally, we were kind of starting to hit origin story fatigue. And it was, I want to say not too long after this, that Kevin Feige made the announcement that like, no more strict origin stories. We're going to be playing with these characters, you know, as they come. So I think this was a contributor to that because it does kind of hurt the overall narrative because we have to spend the first half of the film building him up. And I get it for uh, fans who aren't really familiar with him. Uh, you can, you kind of need to do that. But I think other films have brought characters in and really haven't explicitly shown that origin story and people still get it uh however along with that origin story comes amazing visuals we're talking like inception level visuals which you can tell was a big uh influence on the film with all the trippy mind-bending stuff with all the set pieces a big part of the big last fight is them running around with buildings you know collapsing in on themselves and i really enjoyed that and you also get one of, I think, the quintessential love letters to Jack Kirby's art style. Um, he is, as you can tell, a very big influence on Doctor Strange and as well as Thor Ragnarok. Um, it gets trippy. It gives us a lot of the whole sequence of uh, the uh, Ancient One basically punching... Doctor Strange through all of the alternate realities and all the stuff like that was really, really uh, trippy and really cool and fun to watch. Uh, we also got corners of the mystic Marvel universe that I kind of touched on earlier, including a big confrontation with Dormammu, who is much larger than he, I think, ever is in the comics. But getting Dormammu really, I think, opens up a world of possibilities with these more uh, magic-based heroes and villains. Unfortunately, the hero the villain that they used in this film, Kaecilius, uh, wasn't a very strong character. Uh, he, again, falls into the trope of let's have our hero face a villain that pretty much mirrors them. And it's unfortunate because the actor that they have doing it, Mads Mikkelsen, is an incredible actor. An actor that I personally would have had be the MCU's Doctor Doom. Because I think he can carry himself with enough gravitas to play that character. And he's an incredible actor in his own right. Um, unfortunately, he's not well showcased here uh, outside of being just kind of a mustache twirling mirror to Doctor Strange. So that's unfortunate. However... He is kind of uh, offset by the Ancient One. The Ancient One is a great, great presence in this 
uh, in this story, played wonderfully by Tilda Swinton. She steals every scene that she's in, and her kind of goodbye scene as she's dying with Doctor Strange in their astral forms is legitimately one of the best parts of this film. Um, There was a lot of controversy when they first announced the casting of this, um, because the Ancient One is typically an older man of of uh, Asian descent, and they decided to replace him with a very Caucasian woman. Um, I think the controversy 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 was more about the um, the race bending rather than the gender, but I think Tilda Swinton works in this role. She does a really good job. Um, she does a great job of being the character who offsets Doctor Strange's more um, kind of confident and cocky aspects, where she's very straight to the point, but also being someone who believes in Stephen Strange and allows him to continue his pursuit of the mystic arts because she sees the good in him. Also, a great addition is Chiwetel Ejiofor's Mordo, Baron Mordo to be exact. He is fantastic in this role. He doesn't get as much to do as I would like, but with the post credit scene of him turning a, uh, a villainous side, he is going to get a lot more screen time and a lot more focus in uh, potential Doctor Strange sequels. So I'm excited to see where he goes, and Chiwetel Ejiofor is an incredible actor. So I'm really interested to see him be a little bit more antagonistic when it comes to his relationship with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange. Also, big ups for uh, Wong. Wong is fantastic, played by Benedict Wong. And... uh, We liked him so much that he showed up again in Infinity War, and I think he had some of the best moments in this film. His whole deal where he was uh, listening to single ladies while uh, Doctor Strange is stealing books is still one of my favorite parts of this film as well. And we get the magic carpet-esque Cloak of Levitation. I adore this cloak. It has a mind of its own, it steals the scenes that it's in, and I really enjoy it. It's a great little... Um, companion to Doctor Strange, so I really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, the companion that doesn't work for him is Rachel McAdams, which kills me because I love Rachel McAdams. I think she's a great actress, she's really fun, and I just don't think she worked here. This is another um, kind of rehash of the Jane Foster, Pepper Potts MCU formula, where she is really just kind of there to be a love interest she doesn't really have any character beyond that um and it's sad because there's a lot more that you could do with her character so um unfortunately for the reasons that i uh i've noted here it can't go any higher but it is still a genuinely good film and just beating out dr strange by literally this much literally this much at number 15 it is ant-man and the wasp Now, before you start throwing things at me, hear me out. Ant-Man and the Wasp is a great film. Ant-Man and the Wasp is a very fun film. Ant-Man and the Wasp is the perfect sequel to the first Ant-Man film. However, Ant-Man and the Wasp, I think, personally, came about a year too late. I think with as much of a thrill ride as it is, as fun as it is, as much of a good time as I had with it... 
once we go into a post Infinity War world, you really have to step up your quality when it comes to uh, films, not just in the MCU, but superhero films in general. And I think that this just fell short of the mark, which is why it takes its place at number 15. For positives, uh, Scott Lang and Hope Van Dyne are incredible characters. Um, I love both of them in these roles, uh, with Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly really playing off each other and having the chemistry that a lot of these previous films kind of lacked. I really, ah, I adore them. And I think that Evangeline Lilly as a, as a superheroine is such a capable character and could easily carry her own film. Um, and I could easily see her leading an all-female Avengers team. Just my thoughts, just my opinion. I think she's great. Uh, the rest of the crew is also amazing. Uh, having Hank Pym there with uh being played to perfection by michael douglas is uh fantastic i wasn't a fan of how they kind of shafted the storytelling potential for hank pym in the first film but now that we've kind of settled into what his character is i really enjoy this take on the character um scott's crew is also fantastic all three of them are amazing uh we do get another quick little recap story uh, from Michael Pena's character, and I just, I love it. I love that, I love that. It's almost becoming a running joke, a staple of the Ant-Man uh, franchise, I guess, since we have two films, and it's something that a lot of people really adore. Um, and overall, what I adore about this film is the fun factor. It is a fun ride from start to finish. You get to play with these characters who you maybe haven't seen in a while, and also it being a smaller story allows for the fun factor to prevail through it. I really like it. I really like the uh, time that they take to kind of show that Scott is really low on the superhero totem pole so i really enjoy that things i didn't enjoy however uh the villain as much as i really even through the movie really wanted to enjoy ghost i think it was a kind of a misstep at a point where the villains in the mcu could not be stronger um i really think that ghost could have been a lot better than she was i liked the turn by Lawrence fishburne kind of uh kind of recontextualizing her as a character but i think that they could have done more to make us i don't know care i care is a harsh word but i want i wanted to be more invested in the character itself uh this film also unfortunately didn't really hit any new ground um I know there was, you know, the uh, the Giant Man scenes were very fun, but we were introduced to Giant Man in, in Civil War, and this just kind of seemed like a lot of rehashing of those kind of tropes that he had in Civil War and in the first film, so I don't think there was a whole lot brought in. Uh, we also got to see the Quantum Realm show up, uh, which I liked, and I'm sure from rumors and speculation is going to be a big part of uh, Avengers Endgame. So this is a film to definitely watch uh, in the lead up to Endgame. This is a film that I think, as we look back on it, you know, five, six years from now, is going to have more importance the farther away we get and the more uh, the story is expanded upon. 
because the quantum realm is going to have a huge role to play and i think the reason that scott uh survived the snap is going to really be um something that we have yet to see but i think he's going to be a really integral part of endgame uh the biggest thing i think from this film that i really enjoyed besides uh the small i don't even want to call it a cameo because it's a little bigger than a cameo but wasn't really uh enough to think i'd be i would put as a supporting role uh was janet janet van dyne uh played really really well by michelle pfeiffer uh but this is a weird this is a very different take on uh, Janet Van Dyne than I'm used to. So I think just like the kind of recontextualization that they gave to Hank Pym, it's going to take me a little bit of time to get used to, but I liked her. The biggest thing I really enjoyed about this film was that this is a really good palate cleanser after how dark and depressing uh, Infinity War gets. This is almost like throwing in a quick little... Uh, adventure with han and Chewie post empire strikes back so i overall i really enjoyed it this is a great little take a breath take a breather after the events of infinity war and then refocus yourself towards endgame so for those reasons i put it at number 15 uh it's not the best film i think of even the ant-man appearances but i really enjoy it and i think again this is going to have a lot more importance uh as time goes on but that is it for this week tune in next week for uh numbers 14 13 and 12 uh we're starting to get into the really really good ones we're starting to move our way and it's it still kind of blows my mind that so many films have been a part of this i this has never been done before it's never been done before we have 21 films featuring the same cast of characters featuring the same universe the same events and i'm just really excited and really nervous to see where it all goes in four weeks um but yeah, let me know what you thought of this week's picks. Let me know what you've thought of the entire list so far. Uh, to recap, I'll give you a quick recap. Uh, we had Thor The Dark World at number 21. At number 20 was Incredible Hulk. Number 19 was Iron Man 2. Number 18 was Iron Man 3. 17 is Thor. 16 is Doctor Strange. And 15 is Ant-Man and the Wasp. So again, tune in next week for the continuation of this, uh, of this list. Also, tune in next week as we are going to be doing a, another edition of comics countdown this time for shazam shazam is premiering next week and i'm very excited reviews have been really good for it so far there was a bunch of early screenings and press screenings over the weekend um and i've i have actually a couple people who i personally know who went to a uh pre-screening and said they loved it so i'm really excited really excited to see shazam i'm really excited to count down the uh recommended readings for our comics catch-up for this shazam character i've been waiting for this for a long time and i'm hoping that it uh succeeds where many dc films have failed right now i'm looking at it uh it's currently holding strong at a 93 percent on rotten tomatoes for whatever 
you know, that means anymore. But overall, I'm really excited to talk about it. I'm really excited to see the film next week. And I'll also be uh, talking about my experiences at WonderCon this weekend. If you do happen to go to WonderCon, um, I will also be there and I'll keep you guys updated with my journey through it. Um, I'm really excited. I'm just, I'm really excited to see, uh, to see kind of the convention. I haven't been to a convention, like I said, in a in a long time. So I'm just, I'm jazzed. I'm really jazzed. So uh, that's all happening next week, though. Um, for now, I want to say thank you for listening to us all the way through as we are sort of stretching into longer episodes with all the segments. I hope that you've been enjoying them. I've been enjoying putting them together. And uh, yeah, so... Um, Stay tuned next week again for another edition of the Weekly Review, continuing on with uh, this new episode of the Doom Patrol, which is going to be Therapy Patrol. Uh, I might also throw in like a little review of Detective Comics 1000, maybe. We'll see. Uh, there's a lot going on next week, so... Definitely also stay tuned again for the continuation of the list of our uh, official MCU rankings, as well as the comics catch-up for Shazam. Look forward to all of that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Kazana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.